Hello, Shalomo Ben David here, and welcome to this week's episode of Ruminations from Pardes. As this week being Pesach, I hope all your preparations are going well and that you have a truly meaningful and uplifting Seder. And this week it's Rumination 26. Without the Holy Temple, there is no Pesach lamb. Without the Pesach lamb, we cannot keep Passover. So, how can we celebrate Passover without the Pesach lamb? We remember the lamb. Ever since the destruction of the Holy Temple in 70 CE, there has been no place for the Passover offering. As the Torah instructs us, You may not offer the Passover within any of your gates which Hashem your God gives you, but at the place where Hashem your God chooses to make His name abide. There you shall offer the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 16.5 Hence, we have been without the ability to offer the Pesach, Passover lamb. Technically speaking, for over 1900 years, we have not been able to keep Passover. Like all of the Feast of Hashem, we are left with memorializing them only. Remembering is an important part of our faith, because the Almighty is not bound by linear time and space. For Him, it is always now and the cycles of his calendar are points of remembrance for us remember what he has done reminds us of what he will do each time we celebrate his mighty acts we prophetically speak with our lips and our deeds to what he will do in the future his feasts are all about redemption we await the final redemption and the return of messiah each remembrance of our redemptive past, as seen in the Feast of Hashem in Leviticus 23, speak of our redemptive future. We celebrate Passover, we remember the Lamb, Messiah, we await His glorious return to establish His kingdom. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the Merkavah throne, the Kayot, living beings, and Zechanim, elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessed, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the Merkavah, and to the Lamb forever. Revelation 5, 11-13 Passover and the Revelation of Gravitational Pull Pierre-Simon Marquis de La Place was born in 1749, he was a brilliant French mathematician and astronomer who is sometimes referred to as the French Newton because he summarized and extended many of Sir Isaac Newton's theories with regard to mathematical astronomy. Pierre-Simon Laplace's place as a great scientist and mathematician are assured by his five-volume work, Celestial Mechanics, in which he describes the nature and movement of celestial bodies in mathematical language. 
The primary focus of Laplace's work relates to gravity. Using the known effects of gravity's pull on celestial objects, Laplace was able to explain many things such as the movement of planets and stars. Knowing that gravitational pull reveals the mass of an object such as, such as a planet or a star enabled him to be the first to describe the invisible star, or what is known today as a black hole. When Pierre-Simon Laplace presented his work, Celestial Mechanics, to Napoleon, the French leader asked him, Monsieur Laplace, they tell me you have written this large book on the system of the universe and have never even mentioned its creator. Known for his arrogance, and confident of his mathematical process, Laplace responded, I did not need to make such an assumption. Sadly, Laplace did not understand that the heavens reveal their creator. He did not understand that the very principle that he described of how the invisible force of gravity can reveal the presence of an otherwise invisible object is in fact a biblical principle. It is also a general principle of life that if you look at look for the gravitational pull, you can begin to see things that otherwise would be hidden. The lesson is about gravitational pull and how it can help us rediscover something that otherwise may have been forgotten. This lesson will be about Passover. Before we look into the idea of the invisible revealed by a gravitational pull, let me tell you a story. Imagine with me for a moment. It's about 2,000 years ago. We are Galileans traveling to Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration. Three times a year we went to Jerusalem for three pilgrimage festivals mandated by the Torah. They were Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. The first festival in the annual cycle is Passover. It is a week-long celebration. It is a joyous time when we celebrate the fact that the Almighty rescued us from the bondage of Mitzrayim, Egypt. The celebration begins with actual Pesach Seder, the Passover meal, and then continues through the next seven days in which we also celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. All of our celebration is outlined in the Torah, in Leviticus 23, and other passages, and all of our traditions that surround this celebration are correctly focused on the Almighty and His redemption. As a people, we have been celebrating this for nearly 1,500 years. We normally travel in large groups from the villages we are from. We're coming from the village of Kafar Nahum, Capernaum, on the shores of Lake Kinneret, the sea. Sea of Galilee. To avoid Samaria, we traveled the easy route down the river valley of the Yarden and ascend from the plains near Jericho to the mountains of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. When we came over the mountain and looked down at Jerusalem from the village of Beit Pagay, Bethpage, the holy city seemed to glow. Closest to us were we descended from Harzatim. The Mount of Olives was the gleaming glory of the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. The road from Beit Pagay winds down Har Zetim into the eastern gate of the Beit HaMikdash. 
As we walked down the road, our master rode on a small donkey. Many of us lined away and sang the Hillel, the psalms that are traditionally sung during Pesach. It is always wonderful to enter Yerushalayim at festival time. There are always psalms that we sing as we approach the holy city, but this Pesach was even more exhilarating. As more and more people began to openly speak of our master as the long-promised Mashiach. For the past few months, each morning, afternoon, and evening, as we prayed with our Master, we have begun to understand the importance and fulfillment of many of the memorized prayers, and how our Master was in fact the one for whom we were praying that Hashem would send. We wanted Mashiach, we prayed for Mashiach, and here he, here he was in our midst. The mas our Master was the Mashiach. During the week leading up to the actual beginning of Pesach, we spent the night on Har Zetim with other villagers from the Galil region. It was wonderful being that close to the Beit HaMikdash. In the mornings, we would walk across the Kidron and enter the eastern gate of the Beit HaMikdash to participate in Sakharit, the morning prayers, and, and the morning Tamid offering. Afterward, our master would teach in the portico of the Beit HaMikdash, in the afternoons, we would pray Minka, the afternoon prayers, with our master at the time of the afternoon Tamid offering. Sometimes we would pray Ma'an Reeve, the evening prayers that were at the Beit HaMikdash, and sometimes we would pray from where we stood on Har Zetim, facing the west and the Beit HaMikdash. It was very satisfying few days leading up to Pesach. There were a few moments of unease, but even those were quite satisfying. One of those was when our master threw over some of the tables that merchants had set up within the Beit HaMikdash. It was something that pleased more than one Hasid, pious one. Over the years, the Zedekim, Sadducees, in the priesthood, particularly in the Kohel Gadol, high priest, office had turned the Beit HaMikdash into a center for their political and monetary efforts. They had actually set up special temple bazaars with their own currency, using all manner of legal loophole to enrich themselves. Yeshua, our master, pleased many with his cleansing of the Beit HaMikdash of that rabble. But in the meantime, he had enraged the Zedekim and the Kohel Gadol. Yeshua, our master, did I mention that he was Mashiach? was always caring for us, even as we faithfully followed him. Apparently, without our knowledge, he had made plans for us to have our Seder in a house in the city within the walls. This was no small feat during the week of Pesach, when Yerushalayim swelled to ten times its normal number of inhabitants. It was a Seder to remember, which, ironically, is what the Seder is all about, remembering. The Pesach Seder is a meal that is focused upon the redemption of our people from the bondage in, of bondage in Israel. Even before the official Seder begins, we first helped clean the house that we were to use for the Seder. Obedient to the command of removing leaven from our dwelling place, we were reminded of our miraculous and speedy exit from Mitzrayim. Symbolic of sin, it reminded us that our bondage in Mitzrayim can be compared to being enslaved to sin, and thereby repugnant to the Almighty. Removing the leaven reminded us how God's 
how God prepares a way not only for redemption but for removing from us what offends him. As we sat down for our Pesach meal, our master delighted us by leading the Seder memorial. It was joyful and satisfying. We enjoyed his recounting of the deliverance from bondage. We drank in all his allusions to what we thought we understood regarding his soon-to-be-realized delivering of us from the bondage of our Roman occupiers. As we sang the Psalms, we knew that we were on the threshold of something big regarding our Master's revelation as Mashiach. That made it especially joyous. So, even when we left the city to go pray Ma'arif, evening prayers on the Mount of Olives, we could not sense that he was wrestling with something deep and dangerous. After Ma'arif, we went further back into the olive trees to pray alone. And yet, we still did not realize the extent of that approaching danger. We had sensed some of the danger in that the master had angered the Zedekim, and particularly the Kohen Gadol, high priest. And yet, we did not anticipate what happened that night after prayers. Of course, our master always knew. It was ultimately his very plan that this night would be different from every other night. He had always planned that this would be the time. Our problem was not that the master had been unclear, but that we were unaware how grand his plan of redemption from bondage really was. The next day, merely hours after eating the Pesach Seder with us, our master was hanging from an execution stake outside the city walls. Imagine our shock. The joy of the Seder now replaced with horror. How was it possible that Mashiach would be put to death? Of our number only, Yochanan, John, witnessed the horrible scene that was beyond our worst nightmares. It seemed that the threshold of redeeming us from the bondage of Rome, this one like unto Moshe, our Mashiach had failed. The powerful Zedekim had used their Roman collaborators to snuff out our redemption in the very season in which we celebrated our redemption from bondage. Maybe he wasn't Mashiach. Three days later, of course, we had a much better understanding of what kind of master it was that we had followed for those three years. It was after Shabbat that it happened. Some of our women had helped prepare his body for the tomb, but had not finished because of preparation for Hag Ha Matzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, three days and three nights later, the sun had set on the night of the seventh day of the week, and all over Yerushalayim families concluded Shabbat with Havdalah, separation prayers. As it grew dark, the first day of the week began. The women went into the tomb that night in the dark. When they arrived there, the tomb was empty, and the master's body was gone. By morning, we had all been informed that the master's body was gone, and some in our group began to understand that our master had actually risen from the dead. By the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of us had seen him, risen, and very much alive. The joy of our Seder had been briefly interrupted by the horror of his death, but it soon returned, and all the more with the revelation that our Mashiach was far more than we had ever imagined. He was Mashiach. He is Mashiach. 
For forty days he appeared to us and taught us from the Torah and the prophets. On the forty-first day of the Omer, he gathered us together on Mount of Olives again and told us to remain in Jerusalem. Shavuot was only nine days away. Each year after that wonderful Pesach Seder, we remembered our Master during the Seder. Yes, we remembered our deliverance from bondage in Mitzrayim, redeemed by the outstretched arm of the Almighty and led from bondage by Moshe. But we also remember that we have been redeemed from the bondage of sin by the outstretched arms of the Master, one who was like unto Moshe. Each Pesach, one of our young children will recite the traditional questions. During each Seder, we smiled as we remembered and answered the question, Why is this night different from every other night? Yes, Master, we still remember you. And... Immediately after Passover begins the Omer count. And for 49 days we engage in a process of purification as we seek to rectify many aspects of our character traits within ourselves. This is a very important time and it's very auspicious to be doing this. Um, if I recommend uh, if you can find yourself a very good book on the Omer count, uh, one that I've used. Uh, as of last year, uh, Sefir Al-Ha-Omer by Abraham R.A. Trugman is a very good one, and you can get that at thetrugmans.com via a donation. So, after the first day of unleavened bread, after sunset begins Nisan 16, as the day after the Sabbath of Passover. We begin the counting of the Omer tonight, that is, the night following the Seder. Some count differently. However, we count along with all Israel because the Torah was meant to be lived out in community, not making up our own rules and traditions. If you want to know more about why Israel begins the count tonight, there is a Bereans online study that you can go to entitled, How You Count the Omer Matters. Counting the Omer Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before Hashem to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest, the priest shall wave it, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to Hashem. Leviticus twenty-three ten through eleven and fifteen and sixteen. These are remarkable parallels between the Passover and Messiah's last Passover with his disciples in Jerusalem. There is Great truth discovered in the Feast of First Fruits during that historical week as it relates to Yeshua's resurrection and our ultimate salvation. These are often commented on in all manner of religious circles. Something missing from the mix, however, is the counting of the Omer. Most Christians know at least a little about Passover and how it relates to Messiah. 
Some think they know about past about Pentecost, excuse me, Shavuot. What few understand is this mysterious connection between first fruits and Shavuot. What connects these two feasts is the counting of the Omer, and it is an eternal command of the Almighty. Beginning with the Feast of First Fruits, we are to count each day by tradition we do the counting in the evening when the day begins after sunset. Why count? Why not just mark the 50th day on the calendar? Beloved, details matter. Hashem wants His people to count. It is a countdown, or rather count up. To best understand the count up, we should go back to the historical time in the wilderness. The time between the leaving the captivity from Egypt and the arrival at Mount Sinai were 45 days. On the 47th day, Israel prepared to receive the Torah. On the 49th day, Israel accepts the Torah, uh, Israel accepts the Torah sight unseen. On the 50th day, the Almighty King of the Universe stepped into time and space and met Israel under the betrothal hoopah at Mount Sinai. There he spoke his ketubah, wedding vow. There he fulfilled his promise of the fourth I will, corresponding to the cup of the Passover Seder, the cup of praise. Therefore I say to the children of Israel, I am Hashem, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am Hashem your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Hashem. Exodus 6, 6-8 It is the marriage betrothal that takes place at Mount Sinai on the 50th day after the freedom from slavery. It is the memory of this event that we are counting up to. Beloved, it, is also, it also portends for something that has not yet been. It is something that must follow the 5th and 6th, I will, from Exodus 6, 6-8 which points to the messianic age where Messiah reigns from his throne in Jerusalem, where he says, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Hashem. The redemption secured for us by the blessed words of our master Yeshua when he said, it is finished, will be finally realized. The work that he has finished will be clearly evident to all creation. We await that day, and we are counting the days. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, 
for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, she, and he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Revelation 19, 4-9 The traditional prayers for the counting of the Omer immediately precede the bedtime Shema. Blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us regarding the counting of the Omer. And today is, and you fill in the day, of the Omer. Or after six days, the number of days, which are the number of weeks and days of the Omer. The compassionate one, may he return for us the service of the temple to its place speedily in our days. Amen. Selah, and that is from the Art Scroll Siddur for the counting of the Omer. And once again, I just would like to say, may your final preparations for the Pesach Seder uh, go easy. May you not be given into anger with your spouse, that is your wife. You know, for the Yetzer Harad always rears, rears its ugly head, especially at this time, and we should always be careful. And may your Seder be a truly auspicious one, an uplifting one, and to remember the Master and all that He done has, all that He did for us. Um, there's so much to be thankful for. You know, just some closing thoughts. After, now that I've read this, is that what do we desire to be free from? We see all the materialism in the world. And what is happening. There's no evidence of spirituality within anyone. You know, you see this when you're in a large city where people are just walking about their business and yet there seems to be a certain amount of lifelessness within them. And, you know, oppression, so to speak. And we see this today. You know, the way governments behave. You know, trying to enforce their way upon other people. Or when one group of people chooses to enforce their views upon everyone else and expects them to live the way they do. But the thing is, is that we live the way Hashem, our God, wants us to live. This is what the Torah declares. It declares our freedom, and we should always remember this. It is the most important thing, I think, when we... A very important takeaway from the Passover is that we're not servants to men's whims or men's decrees, but rather to Hashem and His Holy Torah, which is eternal, unchanging, and does not submit to the will of man, and the pride and the arrogance, which is so often evident nowadays. So may your Pesach Seder be remi uh, remind you of all this, for Pharaoh himself was a very arrogant ruler over Egypt. He oppressed the Jewish people. He stripped them of their wealth and enslaved them with bitter bondage and difficult task to perform. How is the, the parallels are striking. There's so many that can be uh, seen. You know, the government making life more difficult upon its citizens by taxing them heavily, you know, Look at inflation, you know. What your money bought yesterday does not necessarily buy today. So just another example of what it's like to deal with 
the Pharaoh of Egypt. In my opinion, he's still alive and well today, spiritually speaking. You know, the consequences spiritually are are evident today. And another aspect of the Seder that comes to mind is it can bring it brings about tikkun, a repair, bringing down the holiness of Hashem into this world that Mashiach may be seen, which is another thing. Can Mashiach be seen in each and every one of us? And how we behave, how we walk, how we treat each other, how, you know, we respect one another. You know, everyone has their opinions. They all differ. But ultimately, one thing that brings us together is the Torah. It is our banner. It is the one thing that declares our freedom. And when we get together in a community and we study the Torah and we live it out, this is freedom. And I thank you for listening to this episode and I hope that you're blessed and that your Passover is an, an uplifting one. A friend of mine on the, in a telegram group shared the following and this is kind of a shout out to uh, Strictly Torah uh, run by uh, my friend uh, Yosef Reichman and I wanted to read the following. Uh, Rashi explains that the yeast in the dough refers to the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, a personal negative force. Just as the yeast in the dough agitates the dough and changes it from its natural state, so too the Yetzer Hara incites and agitates one's heart to turn it from its natural good state. This is the first comparison between our negative forces and Hamates. Let's see if we can find any more similarities. One of the properties of yeast is that it fills dough with air and makes it appear much bigger than it really is. Talk about an inflated ego. One of the main tactics employed by the evil inclination is to give people an inflated feeling of self-worth. When a person rises and is full of air, he is much more likely to sin, as he cannot see any faults in his behavior. Additionally, he is much more likely to be rude and offensive human being since he sees himself as above most of the people around him and is not sensitive to their feelings. This comparison shows yet another degree of similarity between the evil inclination and leaven. But what may possibly be the most fundamental likeness is one that is often overlooked. How does leavening work? Does one just put yeast in the bread and viola, the bread rises immediately? No, leavening is a very slow process that occurs gradually, taking a long time to achieve its goal. It works at such a slow rate that it is imperceptible to the human eye. Haven't you ever heard the adage, a watchstone never rises? Similar to a uh, watch kettle never boils. Additionally, all you need is a tiny bit of yeast to ferment at very large dough, a very large dough. This is the exact modus operandi employed by the evil inclination. It doesn't start off telling one to do something terrible. No, it's too smart for that. It tells us to be a little lax with this, to put down our guard with that, and slowly, almost imperceptibly, it woos us in the wrong direction. On top of that, a little bit of negativity 
when left to ferment inside us, grows larger and larger until it affects our entire personality. Before we can enter the season of redemption, we need to root out all of the yeast, all of the negativity inside of us. If even if a little bit of that negative force is left within, it will grow insidiously until it begins to significantly undermine our growth. We find an interesting reference to leaven in the Talmud in a section dealing with different prayers various sages used to say. Rav Alexandri, after the Amidah, Shimoni Esrei would say thus, Master of the universe, it is revealed and known before you that our will is to perform your will. But what holds us back? The yeast in the dough and our subjugation to foreign regimes. May it be your will that you save us from their hands so that we return to serve you with a complete heart.